Hello. For those of you who don't know, I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you guys for coming out. So over the past few weeks, we've been looking at spiritual disciplines. We thought that it would be good coming into the new year to talk about those classic practices that could kind of help reorient our, our lives and ourselves towards God. We know that sometimes life gets terribly busy. Just looking around the room, you see so many students, teachers, parents, like people that just for all intents and purposes are really, really busy. Um, it's difficult at times if you're not disciplined to set aside the proper amount of time for prayer and reading your Bible and uh, fasting and living a life of simplicity. We definitely don't want to make these legalistic requirements, but we know that if we're not engaged in these practices, we're kind of missing out on a really valuable part of our um, Christian experience. But also, as Doug said a few times, these disciplines are proactive, not reactive. So we're training ourselves in the midst of life to be ready for all of those curveballs that are thrown to us, the broken relationships, the hospital visits that aren't planned, the uh, difficulties at school, the tests that you just quite can't pass, the, the major that is in question, like the different things that we have going on in our minds and in our hearts, these disciplines can help us uh, to navigate life and to navigate life well. Uh, tonight, we're talking about solitude. Oh, before we get going, though, that's why I had the big thing on there that said announcements with the asterisk next to it. I wanted to say this. The way that we're going to end this sermon is a bit different. Follow the prompts on the screen. That's why I wanted people to sit close, because when I was writing this at home, that looked big on my computer, but it's not, it's not real big. So hopefully the people in the back can see what's, uh, what's written on there. And if not, it's just going to crash and burn and just hang on and we'll go down with the ship as she goes. Okay. So we're talking about solitude today. And I'm curious what kind of images that idea of solitude brings to your mind. I would like tonight to be a little bit interactive as well. So if you want to throw a hand up or just yell something out, when you think about solitude, what do you think? <laughs> Being alone. Yeah, that's a good textbook definition. Say it again. Monks. Yeah, absolutely. A few weeks ago when I was talking, I showed you that picture of St. Francis Assisi who was kind of sitting there and in both hands he had birds and the squirrels were nuzzled up against his leg and he just looked so saintly alone in wilderness being it at, at one with nature and with God. That's how me and my dog Porter seem on our walks around the neighborhood as I'm dragging him um, from point A to point B. Today was ridiculous. He just... He's a hound dog. He's actually a beagle, but he loves to smell things, and he'll just go darting off, and I'm there trying to enact discipline in a godly manner for my dog, not at one with nature and not at one with Porter. But, yeah, we have these ideas. Any other images that come to your mind when you think about solitude? Yeah. Silence. Good. Anything else? Mountaintop. Mountaintop. Good. Peace. Peace. Interesting. Not us, in many cases, yeah. I think, though, in some cases, us. This was the weird part about preparing this talk is because for some folks, solitude is the most, it's the farthest thing from our minds and our lives. Cassie, just to use you as an example, like you're a people person. It seems like you like to have people around you, and for this idea of solitude, it might not be something that you crave or that something that's actually a part of, of who you are. But for other people in the group, 
that's kind of all you know is, is solitude. Especially maybe even like driving across the bridge and being here at school doing whatever. You just feel alone. You feel unconnected. You feel apart from the people that you once knew or your family. Some, for some of us, it's just kind of we live in that, that area of, of solitude. As Ian mentioned, uh, throughout the scriptures, we do see pictures of Jesus as one who practiced this discipline of solitude. It seems weird to talk about being alone as something that's, that's important, especially for us as a group. We talk a lot about community and relationships and people, and then to turn the page and think about what it looks like to be alone is, is maybe a stark contrast for some of us. But throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus, after he was Uh, Leading up to the temptation, actually, it says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days and at the end of them he was hungry. So here we see Jesus being alone for an extended period of time before his ministry actually kicks off. Right before this was the baptism of Jesus where he was sort of like identified as the Son. If you remember like him coming up from the waters whatever your denominational background that looks like. For some of you, it's emerging from the Jordan River. For some of you, it's going up from the banks after being sprinkled with water. It's interesting how different denominations go about that. But we see Jesus kind of being identified as the Son, not only the Son, but the Son in whom God the Father is very pleased. Before he begins his public ministry, he goes into the wilderness here to be tempted. And as I've said in the past, it's kind of like Jesus reenacts Eden. Think about Eden. It's very green. It's very lush. It's very verdant. It's very fruitful. And we have that first couple, Adam and Eve, living there with that one command, don't eat from this tree. The, the ramifications of that sinful act have kind of set the world on its course. And here we see Jesus not in the green, lush, verdant garden, but in the anti-Eden almost trying to withstand the temptations of the devil and succeeding, which separates him from from Adam. After he heals a leper in Luke 5, it says, Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Before he chooses the disciples, it says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Here we see Jesus on the cusp of making a very important decision, separating himself to pray, almost to get guidance in making that decision. After the beheading of Jesus' friend, John the Baptist says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. A lot of times when we live our lives, the things that happen that are weighty, that are difficult, that are trying, force us to remove ourselves, to get in the boat, as it were, to be alone, to process what just happened. And here we see Jesus, who, side note, is the Son of God, still going through that. So often when we read the Bible, and I'll try to pull this out even more in in a minute or so, we remove Jesus's humanity and just see him as the guy that kind of floats around six inches above the ground and super human almost. But here we see Jesus acting in a very human way. At the transfiguration, and this kind of really 
contrast what I just said, like a, not a very human sort of thing. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Here he's taking his friends away, separate from other people. Also before his arrest, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He says to them, catch this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is not the Jesus that's floating six inches above the ground. This is the Jesus that's very much connected with who we are as people that, as the author of Hebrews says, knows how to sympathize with us in our weakness. This is a Jesus who's, I'll say it and might be deemed heretical, scared. This is Jesus who is doubting. This is Jesus who is questioning. This is Jesus who is begging, pleading, praying to his dad. He separates himself from his crew. It says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples. They found them sleeping. He goes away a second time and then jumping down to the bottom, he goes away a third time again. The same kind of pattern of Jesus removes himself to pray, comes back, finds his disciples asleep, removes himself to pray, comes back, finds his disciples asleep yet again. So throughout this, we see Jesus in many different scenarios, in solitude, in isolation, being alone. For Jesus, this was absolutely vital to his ministry. Think about it. Before big decisions, he was gone by himself. After things that hurt him, he was gone by himself. When he needed answers, he removed himself from the situation to find answers through prayer. In, in many different circumstances, we see Jesus, after healing people, after something that's, that's good, that's worth celebrating, he removes himself to be alone, to pray, and to figure out what's going on. For Jesus, it was completely vital. It was necessary, it was intentional, and it was life-giving. This idea of separating himself from his crew, from the people around him, in ways that his, his friends didn't quite understand, was very central to his ministry. And one text I want to look at a little bit closer is this idea of the first temptation uh, in, in Luke chapter 4 specifically is what we're going to be looking at, and then the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see how this idea of solitude and being alone can help in life's circumstances. You could, you could look at it from many different standpoints, but I just picked one here to kind of solidify why solitude is important. This is the text from Matthew. Uh, it says, The devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is at the end of the temptation narrative. So Jesus has been led by the Spirit. He's in the, the wilderness for 40 days, like the anti-Eden. He's fasting. Satan shows up, the adversary, the diabolos, shows up to, to tempt and to test. Uh, Jesus withstands those temptations, and at the end of Matthew, it says very plainly, the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. In Luke, though, what's interesting is this story is told in a different way for a different purpose by a different author for a different audience, and everything in that story has meaning. It's loaded with meaning. One of my professors used to say, there are no free motifs in the Bible, meaning if there's like this little thing that you can latch onto, it means something to that author. How they're telling their story had purpose. And here at the end of Luke's temptation story, 
Same thing, he goes out in the wilderness, 40 days, he's fasting, the adversary is testing him. When Jesus withstands the temptations there, it says the devil left him until an opportune time. Luke is a master storyteller. Yeah, he's a research nerd. He probably had some dark rimmed glasses. He was compiling all these sources, looking at Wikipedia back in the first century, trying to compile things. Students do not use Wikipedia, okay? Don't let me be the one to tell you that because your professors will bust you. Although sometimes Wikipedia does have good sources that you can just follow the footnotes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Anna's a graduate. She knows what I'm saying. You follow the footnotes. Anyway, the devil leaves him until an opportune time. And for Luke, that's, that's a piece of, of his literary artistry. Check this out. Now, this opportune time might potentially be at the very end of Jesus' ministry before he's crucified. In that scene of Gethsemane where he's really wrestling with what's going on here. Just to pull out some thoughts. This again is Jesus removing himself from his friends to be alone. It says he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and he prayed. But he prays, Father, if you are willing take this cup from me. Let me hear from the folks in the room now. When you hear this line, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, describe to me Jesus' state of mind as he's praying this. Desperation is good. What else? Burdened, yeah. Anything else? Afraid. These usually aren't terms that we throw around to identify with Jesus. Burdened afraid. Noel, what was your word? Desperation. desperation, like he's desperate. You usually don't think of those things, but in this text, he's a very human depiction of, of Jesus here, and he asks the very simple question, hey dad, if there's any other way to do this, I'm game. <laughs> you know, the next few days for Jesus aren't going to be really good. Starts with, with the lashes, and actually, as we'll look here in a second, I don't want to get into like the medical details of the crucifixions and the things, uh, things leading up to that, but it seems like Jesus was in angst over that. But you have to think that it's not just the physical stuff. It's not just taking the nails in the wrists or in the ankles or in the tops of the feet, wherever they were put in that day. It wasn't just taking the lashes. It wasn't just the crown of thorns. It wasn't just the humiliation and being spat upon by the people that you used to be in the temple with. It wasn't just that it was separation from from his dad separation from the members of of the trinity almost as jesus is hanging on the cross one of the last things that he says is my god my god why have you forsaken me why have you abandoned me why aren't you here right now there's a lot of things going on probably in jesus mind but none of them are that kind of depiction that we get from you guys seen the vintage 21 films Okay, I, I'll post it on Facebook because that's a really, like Daniel Tosh says, if you can narrow down the audience to one person, you've succeeded. And I think I just narrowed it down to me and Josh Millwood and a couple other people in that weird Christian bubble world. But if you've seen a Jesus film, he's not uh, one that wears his emotions on his sleeve. He's just kind of other than. He's not really a guy that you'd want to spend much time with. He's something separate, but we see, we see something different in this text. But he goes on to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. And this has kind of informed how we pray. I'm going a little bit beyond solitude here for a second, but when we pray for things, a lot of times as Christians, we tack this on to the end, and we kind of, in a sense, make our whole prayer ineffective and worthless. 
We say, I really want this to happen, but whatever you want. And it almost like gives us that safeguard for if God doesn't answer our prayer, then I have this scapegoat of, oh, it must not have been his will or his time or his whatever. And it just kind of makes us feel good about ourselves when he doesn't answer the prayer in the way that we hoped that he would. And for some of us, it'd be better, this again might be borderline heretical, if we left that off of our prayers and we just said, heal, do it now. All over your word, it says if we ask and we have faith and we believe and you will, you will do this, you will heal, bring the sick before the church and let the elders anoint them and they will be healed. There's no like qualifications there. But when we pray for healing, we say heal, but if it's not your will, I guess I'll be okay with that. And we kind of like go in a, in a completely different direction. It, it boggles my mind how Jesus meant this Perhaps he was trying to come to terms with what was about to happen. Who knows? I don't think for Jesus this is necessarily a softening of what he's saying, but don't miss the very human nature of this text where he says, get me out of this if there's any other way. Allow Jesus to be that human son of God that, that takes, takes our punishment for us. Continues, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. This is at, actually at the end of Matthew's understanding of this, of this story. The angel appeared to him and strengthened him and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There's kind of some scholarly controversy. Imagine that. Bunch of scholars disagreeing on things to keep their jobs so they can write articles. But here it says, his sweat was like drops of blood. People don't necessarily know if that means that it was in fact blood or if it was just thick and profuse like you've just played I don't want to compare Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to an intramural basketball game, but I'm going to. And it's an intramural basketball game, and you are just sweating. <laughs> it makes sense when you think about basketball. Usually, what, we're not like in our office praying, working up that much perspiration. We're usually not in those situations where we're working up quite that much sweat. But here, we don't quite know if it actually was blood or if it was just thick and profuse and just a lot of it. There is a medical condition called hematidrosis, which is the capillaries underneath of your skin burst. And when you sweat, it allows some blood to, to, to show. It is possible that this was what's happening. If that's the case, people have argued that that would make the skin so much more tender. So the suffering that he went on to take in the next few hours would have been that much more painful. Not, I mean, it's not like you need to really ramp it up when you're talking about crucifixion. Like, oh, let's just tack this on and make it that much worse because that's pretty bad in and of itself. But here we see Jesus being in anguish, wrestling, desperately, struggling, in anguish. It says, when he rose from his prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He said, he asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. From this text, we learn a few different things about solitude. We learn that solitude does not safeguard us from difficulties. I shouldn't even really have to say that. Prayer doesn't safeguard us from difficulties. Fasting doesn't safeguard us from difficulties simplicity doesn't safeguard us from difficulties. These are all practices that we do in the midst of those moments of life. 
We see Jesus before, during, and after difficult times removing himself and being in solitude. Solitude also functions kind of as a container discipline, meaning you don't just go away and hang out by yourself and say, great, that's spiritual. I feel very good about that. You have to kind of go away to do certain things. So Jesus went away to fast or to pray or to do whatever that would allow him to have unbroken communication with his dad. We also see that solitude teaches us how or what to pray. A lot of the things that we've learned how to pray throughout our life are safe. They're tame. They're dinner table type prayers. But when you're in the midst of tragedy and brokenness, the dinner table prayer won't really cut it. If you read the Psalms, all throughout you'll see folks that are just kind of shaking their fists. Why are you doing this? What is the plan? What's going on? Why won't you answer me in anguish with sweat like drops of blood? Personal confession. Uh, it's been some time since, since I was in anguish in prayer to God. It's just, it's, it's too easy for it to be safe. It's too easy for it to be, dear God, thanks for this day. Thank you for this food. Amen. Let's eat. It's too easy for us to stay there. But once you, once you remove yourself and in the silence of the moment, not only are you aware of things that you should be praying for, but I think that you're re- reminded how to pray as well. And then solitude provides us with an opportunity to listen, an opportunity that in our context is not very... Um, readily available for whatever reason. And it kind of links this idea of solitude and silence. I forget who said it. Was it Will? Somebody was talking about silence and and solitude, which is great to pull those comparisons together. Uh, Susan Moto says, in a noise-polluted world, it's even difficult to hear ourselves think, let alone try to be still and know God. Yet it seems essential for our spiritual life to seek some silence, no matter how busy we may be. Silence is not to be shunned as empty space, like that idea of uh, removing everything from your mind. It's not that, but it's to be befriended as fertile ground for intimacy with God. It's that table setting that allows you to communicate. It's that table setting that allows you to fill it with prayer and silence and fasting and these other things that come together in this noise-polluted world. Talk to me about noisy places. Thank you. Yes, says the mom of two young boys, one of which is very energetic, takes after his dad. No, he doesn't. Sorry, Evan. What else is a noisy place? Commons. Commons. SU students unite and say all together, yes. Okay, good. That worked. I I didn't think that was going to work, but I appreciate that. Good. Where else? Yeah. Why are you at Chuck E. Cheese? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Yes. And Chuck E. Cheese is one of those places that if you worked there, solitude and silence, I mean, those are, those are foreign concepts. Any other places in your mind that you can think of that are, that are noisy? <laughs> yes. True words. And all the midwives in the room said, yes. Yes, good. (laughs) Any other place? We don't really have anything that's equivalent to this, but I, uh, 
Kate and I spent some time at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, home of the Rose Bowl. Said that funny, the Rose Bowl. There's, there was one dorm, wasn't the dorm that we were in. Actually, we could talk about noise from the standpoint of our dorm. I'll go ahead and do that. Um, our apartment was like in this courtyard. So when you open up your door, you looked right across and it was another person's house. And nobody used their AC. You just open the windows because it's 79 degrees and absolutely beautiful every day of the year, minus about five or so. It's, it's God's country. I swear, it's where God has shown his favor upon upon the world but it was it was just loud you could hear people like having conversations and we had this in our room we lived on the second floor so we had this little vent that went up to the second floor and you could smell what the people down below us were cooking sometimes that was good and sometimes that was not good Kate and I that was probably the worst year of our marriage everyone around us must have thought what is that guy doing in seminary he needs to get saved uh, because <laughs> he it was good because we had a lot of international students uh, and they didn't speak English. So we might, have, we might have faked like some holiness there. We just get really excited about Jesus together. Um, but it, it, was, it was a trying time. This building though is where our friends lived. They lived facing the freeway. Uh, so their one window in their apartment, when you opened it up, I mean, seriously, it goes from, it's like that commercial where you are outside of the car, it's really noisy, then you get inside the car and it's like totally quiet. But it's like, you're just sitting there in their room and then they open the window, it's like, <laughs> just steady. Because it's a free, it's just people going. And at this point, it wasn't like stop and go. It was just all the time, the smells and the, the sounds. And it was just, it was noise. In on the Eastern Shore, we don't have a lot to compare that to, but I'll throw in this, um, this restaurant here, Buffalo Wild Wings. It is a great restaurant if you want some cheap wings and indigestion. But <laughs> what's, what's good about it is um, there's TVs everywhere. I believe the volume is up on all of the TVs to really enhance that kind of like you're focused on the Orioles game, yet there's 19 other things happening. And I believe there's a stereo going on too somewhere. People are talking loud on top of loud. It's like some people when they go home to study, turn on the TV, turn on the iPod, start cooking a meal. You got thousands of things going. It's just noise on top of noise on top of noise on top of noise. Sometimes we are not, we don't choose to be subject to all this noise. For example, I read a study last week that actually I don't believe to be correct. It said that we see 16,000 ads a day. I think that has been corrected. At least it was in, in 2009 in the New York Times. We see about 5,000 ads ads a day. So I'll throw some up here and then you just shout out what it is because we're all brainwashed into seeing these things and knowing what they are instinctively because we see so many of these throughout the day. Yeah. Yeah, and there we've just isolated the, we've isolated the crowd from the, the normal people into the fashionistas of Salisbury. Coco Chanel, yes. And here we've isolated Laura and Evan owners, operators of a UPS store. I looked for a UPS shield without the letters just because, but you can't find it, which is fine. Yeah, the, the post office, Starbucks, yeah. And there again, we've kind of narrowed it down from the, you know, to the, the under 30 crowd probably and the, the music savvy people. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. 
Yeah, I'm over 32, so it, it's okay. But Noel and I can unite in that. Sometimes we don't choose to be subject to all the noise that we are subject to. Sometimes, however, though, yeah, we all know these. Most of us. 90, 92% of us. Um, <clears throat> Snapchat. It's the great evil of the world. It sold the lie that you can take a picture of yourself and it disappears after five seconds, never to be seen ever again, until you go on that one job interview that you've really been waiting for and somehow they've got all your past Snapchats and that's not going to be good for most people. Okay? <laughs> Just tuck that away and be edified by that. But these things are ways that we choose to be inundated with noise. I think there's been some studies. I looked for them. I might just be making one up right now, but I think Twitter has changed almost how we think, <laughs> changed our brain, which isn't a, it's not a bad thing necessarily because you got to go with the times, but it's like you're just used to that constant update. This is new. That's new. This is new. What this person doing? What's that person doing? How many of you guys just sit there pretending to work, checking Facebook? You cycle through email, Facebook, you break out your phone, do some Instagram, you go Twitter, Google Plus for the, the really social elite uh, there off to the side. But it's like you choose to have that noise in your life. And this is not me railing on social media to say this is bad, but it's just, it's a constant barrage of things. Probably the last thing that I look at, and I guess you guys, a lot of you could agree, is your cell phone. You crawl into bed and you do one last check. So right before you close your eyes to go to sleep, you've got this Twitter feed and this Facebook stuff just popping up all over the, over the place, which is why I end up sending messages to Doug at 3 a.m. saying, we need to get this, we need to get that, I'm totally wired, I can't sleep at all. We have all this noise and all these things that keep us from silence, and why would we choose that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, we're so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order to not have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order to not have to look at ourselves in the mirror. He says we fill our lives with noise because we're afraid that in the silence, in the solitude of that moment, we understand something about ourselves. For some people, you kind of, you, you focus in on that, like we're afraid to be alone, and you might be thinking, well, I'm alone all the time. Got no friends, got no people, got no family. I'm just here, I'm existing, I, I have nothing. But even in those moments of being alone, are we alone or do we fill the void with all these things? Kate and I can be sitting having quality time. That She just rolled her eyes. Mm -mm. But that quality time is stolen by Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email, down. And then like inherently, it's like you're just sitting there and you just pick it up and she says, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's like you just fill the, the void with stuff, maybe to escape having the deep, meaningful conversations, maybe to escape having to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I failed you in this way. I didn't live up to my end of the bargain. Some of us, we are deathly afraid of those silences. Uh, to flip it around as well, um, you can be in the midst of a crowd. You can be at Buffalo Wild Wings and be practicing solitude. It sounds completely contradictory, but if you have the mind 
to see what God is teaching you in the midst of that moment, if you have the ears to hear the delicate whisper of the divine that says, pray for this person, minister to that person, remember my son, you can be practicing solitude in the midst of of a crowded room. Just like you can be alone, but not in any way, shape, or form practicing solitude or silence. For others, like Laura, a lack of silence is due to a lack of time. It's, it's the mom with many children that are just kind of, they live right, right here in this general region. They just are attached. I'm the idealistic dad that says, that'd be pretty cool when Abe just wants to hang out with dad. But Doug gives me the look like, yeah, well, it's kind of cool for a bit. The novelty wears off. Um, so... <laughs> But now when he just can't communicate at all, I'm just desperate for him to (coughs) smile or reach out or something. Right, buddy? Yeah. (laughs) He gets it. And that's kind of where we live here. For others, uh, it's school stuff, and you're just under a mountain of books. You're under a mountain of deadlines. You're under pressure to succeed, pressure to keep up the grades to keep the scholarship, pressure to keep up the grades so that you get into the program, pressure to do all sorts of things. For other people, it's this, uh, I tried to find a decent graphic that was like, I don't know, this represents a, a woman that plays the stock markets and she's doing, she's doing very well. The, the Dow Jones is going up when she, she's betting, she's betting high, selling low, you know? But it's just kind of like those, those things that, that represent not bad things, but I'm going to say this, and it's, it's going to come out wrong, but like the world. You know, it's like it's money, it's, it's power, it's those things that you fill uh, your time with. And for some of you, you're in that kind of high-pressure world where you have to keep um, performing. I threw a picture of Kate and I up there too because... <laughs> We look good, and I just wanted to show that to you. Uh, no, I, I put that up there to say, like, I think that regardless of your station in life, like, that lower left quadrant could be devoted to you and the ways that you fill your life with, with things that, that keep you from understanding Christ in, in a deeper way. Uh, I know for Kate and I, it's, it certainly is the case. Uh, we're balancing a lot of things, as a lot of you guys are, and sometimes we miss each other as two ships in the night. Sometimes we miss Jesus as two ships in the night, and sometimes we miss all of you guys as two ships in the night. Actually, it'd be more like 60 or 70 ships in the night, you know? <laughs> so what do we do? I think that you learn how to, to cultivate moments like this and, and practice silence and solitude in the midst of it, I think that you look for those spare moments in your day, even if it's five minutes, to, to detach and to focus on Jesus. I think that if it, if it helps you to schedule one or two days a weekend of the whole year where you just go away, maybe even by yourself, to think, to reflect, to plan, to talk about uh, dreams and hopes with God and just to have that kind of time where you're reoriented to who you are and who he's called you to be. You understand that there's leadings that happen in your life and you look for ways to follow them instead of running the complete opposite direction. I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but at times it's, 
It's that subtle voice that says, go talk to this person or go give this person that or go write this email or send this text. And at times it's easy and at times it's, I don't want to do that. I've got too much on my plate. I've got too many things happening. I don't have time. But here it's, it's understanding that those moments are all throughout your day and we can capitalize on some of them. It would also be strange to talk about silence and solitude without actually practicing some of this as well. I've built into this talk, and this is, if you look at Facebook, this is where the weirdness might take place, although I'm not asking you to do anything. If I was sitting where you were and the guy said it's going to get weird, my palms would get sweaty, and I'd just be like, oh no, I hope I don't have to go do something that's going to make me look stupid, although I willingly come up here and make myself look stupid all the time. It doesn't make sense. I know that. Mm -hmm. But here, I've built in some time for silent reflection. If you want, I'm going to throw up some not if you want, it's happening, so get ready for it. I, I've, I've put in some prompts that can just help you to focus your, your thoughts on, on where you are with certain things. I understand that in a room of this size, like, noise is going to happen. Uh, but I would also hope that we can capitalize even on, on these few moments together in the midst of friends, in the midst of family, in the midst of community, and figure out what silence and solitude looks and feels like. I hope that you'll capitalize on this time. After these prompts, you'll see the screen and it just kind of keeps going. And at the end of it, we'll ask you to come on up and take communion together.